Anytime we sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, I feel this overwhelming sense of desire to explain the word Ebenezer. And (laughs) I hear the word, yes, please do. Okay. So you're you're not singing about Ebenezer Scrooge, okay? Um, The word is a, a Hebrew word, and the songwriter really understood it when he wrote it a couple hundred years ago. The word is Ebenezer. And Ebenezer is something very specific. Um, when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, God gives them the land that we call Israel today. They crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. And God told them to put some marker stones, a big pile of rocks. That's called an Ebenezer. It's a Hebrew term and it means marker stone. So we have in cemeteries today, headstones. When you see headstones, it's a marker of that person's life. So that's an Ebenezer. So when you say, here I raise my Ebenezer, you're raising your marker stone saying, God has done something magnificent here. It's, that, it's a reflection of 2 Chronicles 16.9. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. That's what that is. That's that marker stone. God's been powerful in your life. So now you can amaze your friends with that piece of information. Um, Let's take a minute and pray and talk about uh, this book of John with God and ask Him to really lock it into our hearts so we come away from this this morning feeling like we've really understood God a little bit better. We just read Psalm 111.2 and it said, We study your works So that's what we're about to do. Let's ask God to help us with that. Heavenly Father, we're going to take some time now and really invest our time in trying to understand your your character and your nature better. We want to leave here this morning knowing that we have not only communed with You and that we have grown deeper in our walk, but that we're really experiencing relationship. And so, Father, that that can only happen through the work of Your Holy Spirit, Your Spirit who can unveil things. And so for those of us who are are earnestly seeking to understand You, I ask, God, that You give us that capacity. Give us the ears to hear. Give us the eyes to see. Give us the mental aptitude to take in what You want us to see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're new to New Hope, you wouldn't know that we're, we're on the hunt we're on the hunt for these images of God, these brushstrokes. Uh, John, the Gospel of John, is really a book that describes God. In John 1.18, John wrote, No man has seen God, meaning no man has ever looked upon God. Jesus explains Him. So if we understand that Jesus' life explains God, when we see these brushstrokes upon a canvas that Jesus makes as He's explaining God to us, through the book of John, by the end of our study, we should have a really clear image of what God looks like, at least as clear as we can obtain, because Jesus explains Him. Now, where we left off last week with Jesus declaring that God is the fountain of life and that He Himself is the fountain of life. He's the source of living water, meaning eternal life. So this imagery that we came away from last week with, this fountain of life, is carried over this week because we're right at the end of the conversation where Jesus is explaining truth to this woman at a well. The disciples have gone into the city of Sychar. He stayed at the well by himself as far as we can tell. 
sitting there at the well, this woman walks up who's a woman of Samaria, and they begin engaging in dialogue. And this conversation takes her down trails that she probably never anticipated as Jesus explains truth to her. And one of the greatest things we can take away from this particular passage is that we see that Jesus did not need to win the debate. There wasn't an argument between God and this woman. Merely Jesus explaining who God is. And we need to take that in ourselves because Christians are so given to engage in debates and feel like we need to win the debate. We actually stand on the Word of God. We stand on truth. So we don't have to be defensive. We take a position that what God says in here, all of creation speaks to. God knew everything from before time in ancient past, present, and future. And our word that we have here, God's word, speaks to all that evidence. So there's really no reason for us to get defensive, but rather just to explain truth as we see Jesus doing. So this entire study that we're in is hinged on this premise that every one of us in our life encounter some point of a crisis of belief like we see this woman engaging in. And her crisis of belief plays out into what does she do next with the information that she has. Because we hinged our very first week of study in the book of John on this premise, what you do next determines what you believe about God. You encounter some kind of a crisis in your life, whether it's health or finances or relationship, and that crisis leads you to a point about what do I need to do to surrender to God? What do I believe about God in this situation? And what I do next determines what I believe about God. And that's what we see being played out in this woman's life. So let's go to John chapter 4 and verse 26 where we left off last week and pick right up there. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find them in the pew racks in front of you, but you'll also see it up on the screen. John chapter 4, verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And we learned last week that the word he isn't in the original text. It was literally I am. It doesn't mean I who speak to you am he. Greek original text says Jesus is saying I am. I am the Messiah. And he voluntarily announced to this woman out in this wilderness area that he's the Son of God. And he knows what's going on in her heart. So at that point, he lets her go. The conversation with her stops. And she bolts back for town to begin telling people what she just encountered. At that point, the disciples arrive. Verse 27, join with me. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? The Greek phrase for at this point, epituto, literally means at, at this moment, literally, they walked up to the well when Jesus said, I am he. Now if they had come any earlier, they would have interrupted the conversation. And she would have felt very uncomfortable in a group of 13 men, and probably Jesus wouldn't have been able to finish. But God, being the controller of everything, knew the exact timing. The woman was there. He engaged in the conversation. And at that moment, the disciples arrive. It's literal. At that very precise moment. And what happens? They're amazed. They're shocked because of what we learned last week. As a matter of fact, the word that's used through modzo for amazed, I want you to see the definition for it. This is what represents their thinking. Through modzo, to wonder by implication, admire, have an admiration, to marvel. Why are they so shocked? Because this is a breach of societal norms for a man, a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, to be engaged in a conversation not only with a woman, a Samaritan woman. 
And that's what's setting off the disciples. They're shocked that she's a Samaritan is astonishing enough. Imagine if these guys knew her background. Five marriages. One man that she's living with now. Imagine how much more so they would have been stunned to know what Jesus knew. Now we get some insight into the first century male mind when literally John writes down what they're thinking. He says they didn't say it, but look at what he said that they were thinking. What do you seek? What, why do you speak with her? That's what's going through their head. And in the Greek, what do you seek means what do you want? Why? How could you possibly be in His presence? That's, their, their mind is just reeling with these thoughts, but they know better than to challenge Jesus. And so they remain quiet. They just let it go in their head because they've seen Jesus clean the temple out. And they've seen Jesus perform miracles and they know that He's not bound by society's rules and traditions. So they just keep their mouths shut. Now the Jews believed that for a rabbi to even speak with a woman was a waste of time because they believed that women couldn't process theology and think through scriptural things. So they didn't ever engage them in conversation. As a matter of fact, Leon Morris sums it up this way. Perhaps the greatest blot on the rabbinic attitude to women was that though the rabbis held the study of the law to be the greatest good in life, they discouraged women from studying it at all. So you can see what's going on in that environment, in their mindset. That's why they're so shocked. But Jesus doesn't care about what man thinks. What he sees is the heart. And he sees the heart of this individual, and he forced her to come face to face with the reality of who she was and her need for a Savior. So she makes her way all the way back to the city, and the disciples arrive at that very moment. She begins telling people that she met God, but we find the disciples watching her and something happens. Look what you mean at verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? So that she left her water pot there really speaks volumes to us because this is a domestic housekeeper. She's a, a homemaker caring for her family, whatever her family is at that point. And she left it. She forgot what she was doing, took off and went back to the city. So she's so overwhelmed, it's just gushing up within her, this new life that she's discovered, that she forgot what she was there for. Leaving it behind, John tells us that detail. Why is she so eager? She is so eager to let people know what she's discovered. And this is real evidence that she believes Jesus is the real deal. And she's excited to tell people. So look who she told when she got to Sychar. It says in verse 28, she said to the men. So she's talking to the men of the city. It is very unlikely that the men of Sychar would listen to the witness of a woman, especially a woman of her reputation, about theological issues. And that she recognized that is seen in the way that she couches her conversation with them. I want you to see this because she knew that God, in their minds, didn't speak to women. So she's coming in a very humble attitude. Come, see a man. First thing she did, she took down the walls. He knows everything about me. So she took away the defenses, humbled herself. And the next thing she did, she couched it in the way of a question. This is not the Christ, is it? 
So there's four forms of Greek construction in the Greek language. And in the third form of Greek construction, the way that a sentence is put forward and the way that she did this is always done in a method in which it presumes a negative response. So she's done the third class of Greek construction in which she asks the question in a very humble way, presuming that they're going to have to do something with it now. This is not the Christ, is it? And that causes the men of the city to have to say, well, we'll investigate that. She's causing them to look into this. Now, because she understood the dynamics between herself and the men. I want you to see what Dr. Kent, how he summarized this. He's the provost at Grace Theological Seminary down in Indiana. Look at his quote on the screen. It was very insightful. The woman immediately wanted to give testimony to others of what she had found. But she did so with utmost tact. It would have been unseemly, presumptuous, and probably ineffective for this woman to attempt to teach the men of the city regarding spiritual truth. Her background hardly qualified her to speak with authority on religious and spiritual matters. Therefore, her statement to them was phrased in a deliberately cautious way so as not to arouse antagonism. Smart woman. Only been a believer in Jesus about a half hour. And she's already thinking strategically, how can I get these people to want to know what I know? And her story is so sincere. Do you see what happens next? Verse 29. They went out of the city and were coming to him. So down the road, they're walking very purposefully. They're on their way. They've got a mission. The guy's got a mission, and they're going to investigate. Now, we find the disciples are preoccupied. Meanwhile, there's something else going on. Look with me at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Last week, I used the word mashal. If you happen to remember what that is, a Hebrew word which describes Jesus' style of teaching. A mashal is a method by which a Hebrew teacher would engage, especially in the first century, his audience in conversation to the degree that they would want to inquire. So he makes a statement open-ended and leaves it hanging. So when he says, I have some food, you don't know anything about it, it's left them hanging so they're looking around. There's no wrappers on the ground. There's no Burger King bags. What do you mean? Who brought you food? It leaves them wondering what's going on. So Jesus says, I have food you don't know anything about. Now, it may be in the rabbi-disciple relationship, especially in the first century, we understand that disciples would never presume to begin eating without their rabbi. It may be that they're waiting for Jesus just because disciples would do that, except for Peter, of course. He's probably got half of a sandwich down already at this point. But he stops mid-bite, and they're looking around saying, what do you mean you have food? Why are they so preoccupied with lunch? You have to ask yourself when you're working through Scripture, when you're working through the Bible, why did that author want us to know that detail? I'm looking at this detail and saying, John, why was that important to you? He wants us to know this for a reason. Because they're preoccupied with something that they have worked for. They have gone to great length. They've walked a half mile into a Samaritan village, a place where they're not supposed to be. They've done business with Samaritans. They've negotiated for food. They've walked a half mile back on a hot, dry day. The least you can do is eat. Come on, you need the nourishment. But this is a real distraction point, and they are oblivious to what's going on. 
not seeing that the work of God is taking place. And because they're oblivious, Jesus is using this mashal, trying to bring their thinking back to the level so they conceptually understand what's going on here. I understand. I can relate to these disciples. This distraction point represents many things in my life and probably in yours as well. The things that we work hardest for, that we concentrate our efforts on, that we invest ourselves into are often the things that distract us most from the things that God's doing around us. And so they've got this distraction. They want Jesus to eat. Hey, I'm satisfied, guys. And he wants to enlighten their mind. He's got some nourishment they know nothing about. What is the nourishment? This life change that's just taken place. This knowledge of Jesus. It's brought her to a point where she recognizes She's got God in her midst. Now, if you'll permit me, I'm going to humanize God for a minute. In the sense that I would say this, God draws energy from people learning about God. Now, God doesn't need to be energized, so that's the humanizing part of it. I'm sorry if that offends you. It's not like he's the energizer rabbit that he needs battery packs plugged into him. And it's not as though when we give him glory, he gets more energy. God is I am that I am. But he says, I want you to bring me glory, and I get glory out of people discovering who I am. And that's what Jesus is referring to. I got nourishment because someone else has come into the kingdom. Scripture speaks to this. Jesus spoke to this in Luke 5:17. Look with me up on the screen, or 15:7. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This word joy is very specific in Scripture. It's the word kara. Look at the definition for it. Kara, cheerfulness, delight, times greatly, times being exceedingly joyful. So here's how it's used in Scripture. Go with me up on the screen to Luke 15.10. In the same way I tell you, there is joy, there is kara in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So here's what's going on. Jesus is trying to help the guys understand. The angels and I, we're having a party. We're rejoicing. Karah! There's joy here. And that's nourishing to me. And you know nothing about it. You guys don't understand this. So he's going to help clear it up for them. He takes them to the next level. Verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food, my source of energy, my strength is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. To do the will of God. How many of you here would be willing to admit that you struggle with knowing what the will of God is? Wow, you are way more honest than the Saturday night crowd. Okay, so it's, it's really a truthful statement. We all struggle with that. It is a real issue. Everybody wants to know, what is the will of God? Should I marry this person or not? Should I date this person? Should I go to this school? Should I take this job? What is the will of God in this situation? How do I know the will of God? The first thing I want you to see specifically, and I put it in your notes this morning if you happen to grab one of the bulletins, Jesus did not look on the Father's will as heavy. Rather, He views God's will as a source of nourishment. Doing God's will should bring you strength as opposed to weighing you down. Yeah, it's hard work. Definitely carrying out God's work, carrying out His will. But Jesus sees it as a source of strength. 
That's why he could say very cleanly to Satan when he's being tempted in the wilderness, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He understood doing the will of God, working with God's word, is where our strength comes from. So this distraction point that this lunch has become for them, I really can identify with that. Because I can tell you honestly, there's very few things in my life that keep me from my regularly scheduled appointments with food. I like to eat just like the rest of you. We like our meal times. But very clearly, Jesus was not allowing this moment to be subordinated by human needs. He set aside his humanness, his human needs, and said, I've got this strength from watching someone discover who God is. So you could fill in the blank and say, whatever this blank is, is the thing that distracts me from what's going on with my relationship with God. I've got to set that aside to accomplish the will of God. That's what you see Jesus modeling here. There's work to be done. Guys, the entire city is coming this way, if you allow me to paraphrase that. The entire city is coming. We've got work to do. There's no time for lunch. Let's focus. So here's the second thing I observe about the will of God. It's a very simple definition for you, and you'll find it in your notes as well. The will of God is doing what you know to do through His Word. That's how you discover the will of God. His Word on your knees in prayer. God, what is your will for my life? Well, he says very clearly, it's already there. It's in my word. So let's move on. Verse 35. Jesus is trying to help them get up to the next level now. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Four more months is a really kind of an ancient way of, of projecting something out that it's a long ways away. Solomon wrote about it. You find it in early proverbial writings that are non-biblical also. Four more months and then the harvest. So we don't know if that's what Jesus is quoting here, but literally what they're thinking is their mind is a long ways distracted off. And Jesus is saying the spiritual fields are now. It's ready. It's ripe. Here's how significant this is. It appears that this writing is about a period of time in the month of May in Israel. We know that Jesus has just been in Jerusalem for the Passover, month of April on our calendar. Month of May by the time he makes it up through the region of Judea and into Samaria. If that is indeed the case, that's the time of the barley harvest. And during the time of the barley harvest, when the barley is ripe, the barley on the end of the stalk turns completely white. This is what they might have seen. This is very familiar to us here in the United States because it's a cotton field. When I lived in Arizona during the harvest time, when I would look out on the fields, I would see them blanketed white and they're ready to be harvested. That's Jesus' analogy here. And one more step beyond that, as the Samaritans are leaving the city of Sychar and they're coming out on the two-track, making their way out to the well to see Jesus, they're wearing traditional white Samaritan clothing. Their tunics are made of white cotton. So as they're making their way out to this area, the disciples not only see the white barley field, they see the villagers making their way out to Jesus, and this analogy is so powerful. Let me point out to you something that never occurred to me until this week. And it, Tuesday morning this week, it's just etched in my mind and it'll probably be there a long time because I'd never seen it before until I'm looking at this passage 
and then it's through the work of the Holy Spirit, I'm looking at that and thinking, what an amazing contrast. God's disciples, Jesus handpicked 12 cheerleaders, have just been in the city of Sychar. They're negotiating buying lunch. They're talking to the Samaritans. Would you not think they would stop and say, hey, uh, thanks for the lunch food, by the way. We've got the Son of God out here on the well. You might want to come out and meet Him. We see no evidence that they did that. Yet this woman goes into the city, a five-time marriage failure. She's living with another man whom she's adulterating with. And she's the one whom God trusted the information to. She goes back into the city and begins telling everybody about what she just encountered. And what happens? Jesus sees him. The white field is ready for harvest because the entire city is coming out to see him. How many times have I done that same thing? Where we go into a room and we perceive the people that we're engaging in conversation have absolutely no spiritual interest. And they don't want to engage in that conversation. I'm not going there with them. No way. They'll shut me off. I see no inhibition on the part of this woman. She was ready, ready to tell everybody what she knew, and she wanted them to discover what she knew. And the disciples are clueless. They have no idea that there's a great harvest about to take place. So let's move on. Verse 36. Jesus is going to help them go one step further again. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. This has always been a really strong passage for missions. You bring a missionary up on stage who's going overseas and the church prays over them and they typically read this passage of Scripture. If you've grown up in church, you're very familiar with that. You know that's tradition. But I want you to see this passage in a new light. I want you to see it as a very valuable lesson for us. A really strong reminder that we're in a team effort, church. This is Jesus talking about team, people coming together. As a matter of fact, a few years later, John and Peter went back into Samaria. You can read it later today in Acts chapter 8. They went back into Samaria and saw a great harvest for the kingdom. Why? Because somebody else had sown the seeds. Somebody else had done the planting. Archaeologists today, and the pretty dependable archaeologists, believe that they've located the city of Sychar. It doesn't appear on a map today because it's faded with the dust of time. But archaeologists believe they've discovered the remains of the city. It's located near the springs of Anon. Why is that significant? If you go back a couple weeks in our study, you'll see that when John the Baptist was baptizing at the end of his life, it says in your Bible, John was baptizing at the springs of Anon for there was much water there. If the city of Sychar was only a few miles away from the springs of Anon, it's very likely that the people of Sychar heard the words that John was saying. He was planting seeds. We don't know if that's what Jesus is referring to, but he says somebody else has done the sowing. Somebody else has planted the seeds. You guys get to benefit from the harvesting. So I can understand this because I live in an area where wheat is harvested. I live in Wheatfield Township. Really, that's the name of it, Wheatfield. Across the street from me, 500 acres of wheat. To the east of me, 300 acres of wheat. To the west of me, 400 acres of wheat. In a couple weeks, it's going to turn golden brown. And all the combines are going to show up. 
Now, those guys driving those tractors aren't necessarily the guys that planted the seeds. It's a beautiful thing. You ought to come out and watch it on a warm summer, summer afternoon, and they're moving through with 10 combines in a row to harvest those fields. Those guys are harvesting what someone else had sown, and that's what Jesus is saying. You're playing a team game here, guys. Get in the game. Jump in. Figure out what your role is. So he's telling the disciples, you've got a responsibility to participate. This is the way Paul summed it up. It comes from 1 Corinthians 3.6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. See, we've got people working together. Let's move on. So as a result of the woman, as a result of what she was saying to people, look at what happened. Verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So she's done what some of you have done. She's telling her Jesus story. She's had this moment when she's encountered God and she figured out, I need to change this because I now know who God is. And she's gone into the city and she was very tactful. Now they're so excited about who Jesus is. Watch what happens because there's a progression of their scope of understanding. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them and he stayed there two days two days just to hang out with Jesus. You want to talk about intensive Bible study time? What would you ask the Son of God if you could hang out with him for two days? I bet they were peppering him with questions. And what is he doing? Verse 41, look very closely. Many more believed because of his word. What do you think Jesus taught while he was there? How do you think Jesus taught when he was there? I think I not only have a suspicion, I believe I know and I can back it up from Scripture because Jesus was always consistent. How did he teach and what did he teach? The whole Word of God. If you step back in time with me to the time when Jesus was crucified and then resurrected, when he's walking along a two-track to a city, a village called Emmaus, he encounters two men who are trying to figure out why Jesus had to die. And they couldn't make the pieces fit. They didn't understand it. Jesus shows up in their midst and begins talking to them, saying, don't you understand? These things had to happen. Look with me up on the screen at this passage, Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Wow. Jesus started with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the books of Moses, the first five books. And move to Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hezekiah, the prophets, and began to explain all the scriptures to these guys on the road to Emmaus. Every time you see Jesus teaching throughout the New Testament, what is he doing? Referring back to the Old Testament, teaching the word of God. So is it unreasonable to think when he's in the Samaritan village with people who only accept the first five books of the Bible? We discovered that last week, didn't we? 
The Samaritans only believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The rest of it they set aside. They didn't accept the whole Word of God. Now they've got God in their midst. And what are they saying? Now we know. Now we understand. Why? Because Jesus taught His Word. His whole Word. Verse 42. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Wow. Now that's really a statement. Because publicly, these men whom she had gone to humbly are saying, we have totally reversed our thinking. We have taken in the Word of God. And they're willing to state publicly to this woman who's got this sordid background, you're right, but it's no longer because of what you said. It's because of what we heard and we believe He is the Savior of the world. We've heard it for ourselves. Do you see the scope of their understanding? You would think, because they live in Samaria, they would say, He's the Savior of the Samaritans. Or He's the Savior of the Jews and the Samaritans. What do they say? He's the Savior of the whole world. Last week when we first started studying this, I asked you, in John chapter 4 and verse 4, to circle the word had to. In English, it's two words, had to. But in Greek, it's one word, epi, E-P-I. means a determined course. Jesus had to go through Samaria. So had to, when I asked you to circle it, is for this reason. What does God press upon you that you have to do? Jesus was willing to change course and go through Samaria when everybody else was going on the east side of the Jordan River. He was willing to go into a city and talk to a woman that no one else would talk to, sitting out in a well in the desert area, when everybody else would say, not her, you don't know her reputation. Jesus had to go through Samaria, according to John 4, verse 4. I wonder what it is in our lives that we're willing to do without so that God's kingdom can be advanced. And believe me, I don't mean money because it's very easy for Americans to write checks. Time, energy, resources, reputation. Those are the things that Americans are most unwilling to surrender so when we look at Jesus, we don't see him writing a check to some mission group. We see him sitting down and spending time with a person one-on-one, -on -one, engaging them in truthful conversation about what? The Word of God. And clarifying for them. Why? Because he's trying to redeem the time. This is the way Paul wrote about this. Ephesians 5, 15. Therefore, be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, taking advantage of every opportunity because the days are evil. For this reason, do not be foolish, but be wise by understanding what the will of the Lord is. Or this one from Colossians. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunities. There's a presumption, and it's a great presumption within church. Church culture is so guilty of this of presuming that those who are outside the church should surrender everything they know so they will come in and sit down and listen. That's a huge presumption on the part of church-going people. 
That's why Jesus understood that the mentality was such that we need to go to those individuals as opposed to waiting for them to show up. That's why he said in the Great Commission when he sent people out, go to the world, not wait for them to come to you. So there may be a moment when you need to go to a well and pull up a stool and sit and wait for a Samaritan to show up and just be patient and be willing to engage in that conversation. What I would like you to see with me is I'm going to let you leave in just a minute, but I want you to trace with me, especially if you love theology, trace with me Jesus' movements over these last three weeks as we've looked at this. We first found him in Jerusalem. What's he doing? Cleaning out the temple. Next thing we found, he's out in Judea. What? Working in the countryside, baptizing and preaching. Then we find him last week and this week in Samaria. What does the Great Commission say in Acts 1.8? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. See, he modeled for us exactly what he wants us to do. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. So what do we see this woman doing? The very first thing she did, she went back to her own city to her own people and began saying, you guys, you won't believe what I just heard and what I just saw. You've got to come check it out. So church, where is God's Spirit nudging you on this issue? Because we hit this moment of the crisis of belief and you've got to do something with it. So before you reach for your car keys, I'm going to give you two things to talk about in your car as you leave today or as you go to lunch. On the first one, here's my first observation. This passage really exposes priorities regarding our own self-interest, like the disciples with their distraction and their lunch, versus God's interest. So ask yourself these questions. Am I willing to forego a meal to advance the kingdom? Am I, am I willing to forego, God forbid, an evening of television? Am I willing to forego what? I don't know what that is in order to respond to what you believe God's doing around you. So God's will, very simply, start by talking to the people that are around you and engaging them in truthful conversation. But mind you this, you need to earn the right to do it. And it's very likely going to take you a lot longer than it took Jesus to engage in that conversation. Here's the second one. This applies to every one of us at New Hope because we watch what God is doing around us as He's growing this church. Is our view of God big enough? Can God still call an entire city to Jesus? Can God call all of Hazlitt to himself? What about all of Meridian Township? Okemos, East Lansing, Williamston. Can God still call an entire metro complex, all of Lansing, to Jesus? That's a question. Do you believe that he can do that? Absolutely. He can do that. So we ask ourselves these questions and we wonder, how might Sychar have looked differently the week after Jesus left than the week before he showed up? How might Hazlitt look differently or East Lansing or Okemos or Williamston or Holt or Mason? How much different might our region look after people discover Jesus. So here's your crisis of belief. 
And what you believe about God is going to determine what you do next. You've got to act on it. Let's ask God to seal these things in our heart. Heavenly Father, we come before you because we've desired to know more about you and to see these brushstrokes. Father, I think you've made yourself very clear through this text. And so I'm just asking for each man and woman, each student, each child, everyone who's heard this teaching and the words of Jesus himself, that you would take these things and seal them deeply for us, that we would have a vision to know that you want to expand your kingdom. And you will not stop. Our choice is whether or not to join you. So Father, I just ask that you would seal it deeply and make us bold on your behalf. God, I ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Have a great week.